0: Jack Jeffrey is our next speaker. He'll be giving us two sessions. The first one on Romans chapter 2. The second on 1 Corinthians 9. We'll intersect that with a coffee break after his first session. Jack pastors over in Scranton, PA. His lovely wife, Billy is here. And they brought some folk as well who ministered in their congregation. We're glad to have them. So Jack is going to come first and speak to us from Romans two thirteen to 15. I've met a few of you for the first time, and I'm left wondering, how many of you here are at your first bunion? <laughs> That's wonderful. I may say something about this later, but my first was in 1990. It made a big impact on me. Uh, we do have folks here from Wayside Gospel Chapel. That's actually in Greentown, Pennsylvania. Although I live in Scranton, and the um, the man who pastored there before me, Ron Faith, and his wife, they're here as well. They're pastoring. He's pastoring down in uh, Hagerstown, Maryland, at this time. We're glad to have all of these folks here and to see so many uh, old friends of ours going back so many years uh, at uh, the Bunyan Conference. I want to. Uh, Piggyback on a comment that was just made. Uh, don't be afraid with your questions. This is the Bunyan Conference. Uh, we're not afraid of the hard stuff, and uh, and don't feel like you're going to intimidate me. I've got a thick hide. Uh, anybody that ask the people that know me, they'll tell you that. Uh, whether I was born with it or a period of time in Vietnam and Iraq or just some of the things I've been through, raising six kids or whatever, uh, please, uh, this is going to be a work in progress. You may sense that as I go along. Uh, You may not agree. And there's a lot of times at Bunyan where folks here, we don't agree, but we still love one another, and we're not afraid to express that disagreement, and that doesn't change anything between us. So there's areas where we need to be, like John was in that book, real sharp and real firm. There's a line to be drawn. Then there's areas like what I'm going to present from Romans chapter 2. At the end of the day, you, you may not agree. That's all right. But I hope I can provoke you to take another look at it and think twice about where you've been with it. I hope you hear something new, something fresh. I'm here to provoke you and stimulate you and challenge you. Some of you may be here for other reasons. If you're here for that reason, I hope I can fit that bill. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that this might be a time of mutual blessing, a time of celebration of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that through having been together, our love for him and for one another might grow, might blossom, might bear fruit, and that through having been here, through all our times together, visiting and fellowshipping and worshipping, singing and praying and looking into your word that when we depart this place and go back to our local assemblies, We might go with the glow of a mountaintop, carry this blessing to others who could not be here to share in this. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, and we covet your spirit's ministry in Jesus' name. There are a few of you here today who were here for a think tank that was held in Buffalo last July. Those who were there had the benefit of hearing what I could call chapter one or where I laid the foundation for what I'm now to present as an example of what I was talking about and I mentioned that at that time. What I presented there, I called the silence of the new covenant fallow ground in the New Testament. And I want to just give you the gist of that so you can understand why I'm going at these two passages of Scripture. At the end of the day, you may not agree that I'm on good ground with these two passages of Scripture, but you may think of others. And I hope that you will sharpen me, return the favor, or stimulate or provoke me. The work needs to go on. I'm convinced work needs to be done But I think the problem is that there's so much for us to do, and you cannot depend on the covenant theologians to do it. You cannot depend on the traditional dispensationalists to do it. Are we doing what we ought to be doing? Are we really seeing the New Testament through new covenant eyes? Now, let me give you some examples of how bad it is out there. This may be old news to some of you, but I can't assume it is for all of you. So follow along with me. Now, first, I've got to get some administrative matters out of the way. Don't worry, Pastor Clemens, Jacob, and John. It has nothing to do with the conference. The administrative matters have to do with the biblical covenants. And as we come to Romans 2, as we come at this passage, I hope you can understand the issue of presuppositions as we read the New Testament, as we study this passage. This is the issue. Are you seeing the New Testament through New Covenant eyes? That remains to be seen. I must begin by explaining the title: Seeing the New Testament Through New Covenant Eyes to Test Text. The point of the parentheses. Both of these passages, in some translations, are. are encapsulated in parentheses. In other words, they interrupt the thought. Paul can't proceed without throwing this out there, getting it out there. And I'll tell you, in some of these parentheses in, in, in scriptures, and you know how Paul's mind works and how he writes, there's some deep theology there. And I think these are two classic cases where this, you could actually think about writing a volume. Maybe you'll beat me to it. Parenthetical theology. That's a freebie. Anyway, we should, this is the gist of what I tried to present in Buffalo, we should be seeing the New Covenant as underlying the entire New Testament as woven through the warp and the woof of the entire New Testament so that we don't have to apologize as we read the New Testament that this is about the New Covenant. Amen. Amen. You're amening now. We'll see. We'll see. Right? (laughs) Some of them know where I'm going with this. For some people, if you showed them where the New Testament quoted a New Covenant prophecy from the Old Testament, they would not have a problem. Kind of inescapable. If you showed them where there's an allusion to, where the wording is a little different, but it's clearly the thought, where the... It's just been rearranged. It's loosely paraphrased. It's called an illusion. And, and if the Nestle Island or the UBS Greek Testament said it was an illusion, well, now what are you going to do? So they'll see the New Testament there, maybe. I'm talking about where it doesn't say New Covenant, where it doesn't quote a New Covenant prophecy, where there is no clear allusion to the New Covenant. Now, if you say that's got nothing to do with the New Covenant, you're leaving a lot of fallow ground. This is the fallow ground I'm talking about. If you open your Bibles and you put your hand on the page, you open your eyes and you look at that page, and you don't see the glory of the new covenant, there's something wrong. When you interpret those passages and it doesn't come to play, at least in your thinking, in your presuppositions, there's something wrong. It's on every page of the New Testament. And we are on weak ground indeed as we face the opposition to this out there if we don't have that as an operating presupposition. I'm not going to prove that to you today. I'm throwing that out there just so you understand where I'm coming from, and and I'm throwing the challenge out. If that's not your presupposition, if you don't understand that, there's something wrong. I have no doubt about that. In this corner, we have the traditional dispensationalist. My favorite whipping boy, my former professor, is Dr. John Master. He's on record with the regional ETS meeting years ago, with the national ETS meeting, with the book he co-authored with Wilbur Wallace many times, many places, most recently at the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics and in the classroom. He recognizes that allusions to the new covenant may be found in other texts, but the term new covenant is found only in this text in the old covenant where Jeremiah 31 is quoted. And you think well we would agree with that, but what's your point? I'll get to that. What then is a suggested realization of the church to the new covenant? Then we start getting to the point. That the church does not fulfill the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, ensures the certainty of God's promises for the church. I'm not talking about a stupid man here. Did you get that? That the church does not fulfill the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 to 34, 31, 31 to 34, ensures the certainty of God's promises for the church. Let me move on a little bit. He quotes a man. He quotes Jack Lundbaum Lundbaum in uh, the article on the New Covenant in the Anchor Bible Dictionary. Here's the quote. It comes as somewhat of a surprise then to find so little said in the New Testament about a new covenant. And that, to them, settles the issue. The New Testament isn't that much about, we're not about the New Covenant. You see, it doesn't really have that much to say about it. That gets my attention. I used to think he was the worst example of an extreme view of the New Covenant until last September I went to the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics and listened to a paper by Dr. Roy Beecham from Central Seminary. After that session, Dr. Elliot Johnson, I could not open my mouth. I was an observer. There was blood, but I could not open my mouth. <laughs> These are the exact words from my notes. Dr. Elliot Johnson to Dr. Roy Beecham, do you not believe that the new covenant has been ratified at the cross? Dr. Roy Beecham, in reply, absolutely not. That's that corner. In this corner, we have the covenant theologians. And while there may be some areas of disagreement, they've got this thing about the renewed covenant. Where they diminish and undermine the newness of the new covenant. So, on one side, we have it, it doesn't connect to us. It's not ours. We're not under the new covenant. It's, not, it's either not ratified and inaugurated now, or it's ratified but not inaugurated. But in any case, we're not ministers of the new covenant somehow. And I don't know how you get that out of the new testament, but they do. But then these people, it's just a renewed old covenant. J. Barton Payne, I say this with respect. I hope if anyone thinks I'm being unfair to someone, please let me know after. Because Some of these men, I dearly love them. I'm indebted to them, the works that they contributed. And J. Barton Payne, you've got to love a guy who dies climbing a mountain, you know. And Good, good man. But J. Barton Payne entitles his book The Theology of the Older Testament. That is intentional. It's older and newer, the contrast, the discontinuity, they resist like the plague. It's renewed. It's not new, they put the R-E in front of it. It's got to be the R-E. Renewed. Walter Kaiser doesn't fit these molds. It's interesting. Sometimes, if you have the opportunity, read what people say about Walter Kaiser. Read the reviews of his books. Read a review from a dispensationalist. Well, well, not really a covenant theologian. And then when you read the covenant theologian, well, not really a dispensationalist. He's a hard guy to put put in, but he is one who has argued and has taught many times for the new covenant as a renewed covenant. It's a renewal. Again, this is intentional. Uh, A recent example, Rod Decker's paper, that was delivered at that Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics, he makes mention of that. For Kaiser new when used with reference to the New Covenant does not mean new unless in the sense of renewed. Let me say this, and I'm not saying this to be mean, but When an unsaved Israelite reads the Old Testament, there's a veil over their heart. There are people out there, when they read the New Testament, it would appear to me that there is a veil over their heart. Much is written about the Old Testament in the New Testament, or the New Testament use of the Old Testament, but what about the New Covenant in the New Testament? the New Testament development of the New Covenant. Is the New Testament really as silent about the New Covenant as some would have us believe? Is the New Covenant not really that new after all? Why is it that for so many, the New Covenant is put on the defensive? The burden of proof is on the New Covenant to prove that it is really there and operative, and central, and the seriousness of this issue may be readily agreed with. But I would remind you of the profound consequences of error regarding the biblical covenants and dispensations. Old Palmer Robertson asked the question and answered it, What, which structures scripture, covenants or dispensations? There's a lot of disagreement about the answer. I would agree with them that it must be the covenants. I may not agree with how it plays out for him, but I think it's a good question. It's an important question. That question being asked and answered. Does not the old covenant structure the old testament? When the prophets preached, what was what were they preaching? They were preaching the Old Testament with their worship focused on the covenant they were given. You cannot come into the Old Testament, and go out of the Old Testament without understanding it was about the Old Covenant. What about the New Testament? Do we really believe, as an operating principle in our hermeneutic, in the way we approach scriptures, that the New Covenant structures the New Testament, that the emphases we find are the emphases of the New Covenant? Is it woven through the fabric of the New Testament? Do you really believe that? Is it really such a theological and hermeneutical stretch to see the New Testament as the exposition and application of the new covenant? Now, I hope you agree that we need to get this conference off on the right foot. I can't think of a better way to do that than by disagreeing with John Riesinger, Tom Wells, Fred Zaspel, John Zenz, Jeff Volker, A. Blake White, and others in the New Covenant Theology Galaxy. I can document it in their writings, so just so you understand where I'm going, what could be more stimulating than that? <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? And who knows? If I'm persuasive enough, if I do a good enough job, perhaps more of us will be agreed by the time I'm finished than I write at this moment. You can't blame a preacher for trying now, can you? (laughs) After all, when I attended my very first John Bunyan conference in 1990, 20 years ago, at the Bucknell Retreat Center, I didn't know nobody. And They sat me down at the table, right across the table from John Riesinger, and he did the true church syndrome. When I got home, my wife wanted to know what happened, and I said, I don't know. There's smoke coming out my ears. The gears are slipping a cog. I'm hitting the library. Now's my chance to return the favor, John. (laughs) So let's go to Romans chapter 2. Let's go to a place where the silence of the new covenant is an issue. And let's read verses 1 through 16 together in the translation that both David Morris and I used for public ministry. (laughs) Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Let's speak for a moment about the significance of this passage of Scripture. We're in the diatribe now, where Paul has dealing with this opponent and responding to things before people even get a chance, setting them up and knocking them down in this diatribe. But even more than that, in this passage, these verses we are to consider, and I would say verses 13 through 15, but also what's around the parentheses, verses 12 through 16. This is the first usage of the verb justified. In Romans, There are 28 usages of this word group in Romans. The first instance comes up in chapter 1, verse 17. It doesn't come up again until here. It occurs next in our passage for today at chapter 2 and verse 13, the first usage of the verb. What are you going to do with justification? You better start off right in this book or you're not going to end right. This becomes a battleground because of that. The first usage of the word law in Romans. This word and its compounds are found 74, depending on your text, 75 times in Romans. There's one textual issue in chapter 9, verse 32. Of these, 19 are found in Romans chapter 2, 23 in Romans 7. If you ever graph out word usage, people have actually done this. There's these two spikes In Romans, don't tell me there's not a connection between Romans 2 and Romans 7 and between Romans 2 and Romans 8. Do those studies. You see, Paul's going to expand on this. He's going to unpack this later on. He's just introducing. It seems a little vague here. By the time he gets done with Romans, it's not vague anymore. Justification and the law. He's off and running. Here, he drops the bomb. There's implications here for anthropology, soteriology, and eschatology. Not the least of which is this passage's wide citation as a proof text for natural law and eternal moral law theories. I got some baggage I'm bringing to this passage. You may have too. Mine? is who I'm disagreeing with here, no getting around it as I read their writings. That doesn't mean I'm wrong, it just means I have my work cut out for me, and just maybe so do they. Others, immersed in Puritan and Reformed writings over the years, the quagmire of commentary, consensus, prejudice against the Bardians and the New View people. You may have that baggage as well. It can get in your way here. There are theological issues that involve this passage. And I want to jump ahead here, and uh, I am not exaggerating here. If you question what I'm about to say, I'm going to be quoting Sam Waldron. Some of you know him personally. The audio of this sermon is available on SermonAudio.com. He preached it during a conference at Emmanuel Church, Salisbury, Wiltshire, England, October 7, 2006. I listened to it again and again. The Law and New Covenant Theology, the title. Some of you may have listened to it. When I'm done, you may want to listen to it again. I'm being very serious here. He starts out by saying, you can't tell him about New Covenant theology. I was there at its birth. And he objects to seeing the New Covenant in this passage of Scripture. And he has two objections. Number one, it is not the law, but the work that is written on their heart. Common objection. Number two, it would posit a new covenant blessing apart from special revelation. Hmm. Now that seems thought-provoking, doesn't it? Except if you keep listening to him. He goes on to teach that raw pagans had the law, that they are in possession of the law of God from this passage of Scripture and that the law is the same in every age. Here's the quote. God's law is substantially one and the same in all ages. Another quote, part of a statement, the continuity of the law of God in the Old and New Testaments. Play it again, Sam. Let me see if I have this right. Did you just say, On second thought, don't play it again, Sam. I can't imagine that it will be any more persuasive when re-digested the second time. Number one, they can't be recipients of the new covenant blessing because it would be apart from special revelation, but they can have the old covenant blessing apart from special revelation. Number two, it can't be the new covenant blessing Because it's not the law, but the work that is mentioned as written on their heart. But they can't have the Old Covenant blessing in spite of that. Old Covenant law. Number three, they already have what God promised in the New Covenant? That might not be a problem for some of you, but I am here to tell you it's a problem for me. Were you amused by that? I'd be careful about laughing too hard. Perhaps there was a nervous note to your laughter. Perhaps you bought into the same or similar objections to seeing the new covenant in this passage. I recommend that you listen to this message for yourself to determine if I'm being unfair to this representative of covenantal Reformed Baptist thought. But be careful. Examine your own assessment of this passage to see if you have not been taken in by this approach. Be sure that you have not taken this bait and been caught in the same trap. Oh, and uh, Sam, by the way, you want continuity? Here's some continuity for you. Yes, that's right. There's a place for continuity. We're going to hear about it from John Riesinger. I'm not here to steal his thunder. Nobody can do that. But I will say this to you. Theological issues, there's a place to bring them, to test them, take them to the cross. You want continuity? Let's go there. There's a place for continuity, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. Good place to take all our theological issues. Let's see how your continuity stacks up there. Yes, there's continuity there, but it ends there. Two covenants were nailed to the cross, but only one went to the grave. Two covenants were nailed to the cross, but only one walked out of the tomb. Two covenants were nailed to that cross, but only one ascended into glory and is seated enthroned in glory at the right hand of the Father on high. Amen. Two covenants were nailed to that cross, but only one came down on Pentecost to indwell his body, the church. Amen. This discontinuity trumps any pretended continuity of the old covenant law. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 said blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross. Do you want me to play that again, Sam? Oh, and what about natural law? News flash. For those who object that this passage does not explicitly mention the new covenant, listen up. There is not one word here referring to creation either. There is no natural law here. There is nothing natural about it. This is supernatural law, if it is anything. Now, you may not be aware, but a lot of work has been done on this passage over the years. Going back to Augustine and before, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. So no friends of mine, but they saw this here. They weren't New Covenant theologians. They weren't part of these issues. They weren't part of these systems as we think of them today. Karl Barth in 1933 and 1969, published works that pr- present this view. Paul Manier in 1971. Most of you are familiar with Cranfield in 1975, and that may be the extent of your exposure to this in his footnotes. But Adriel Koenig at the... Uh, the uh, University of South Africa, who is retired from there now, he wrote an article in 1976, Gentiles or Gentile Christians, on the meaning of Romans 2, 12 through 16. Uh, It's a little hard to get, interlibrary alone works. But there is an article, a good article, that was published on it, Francis Watson, Paul, Judaism and the Gentiles in 1986. And then N.T. Wright became very influential on this in uh, 1988, 1989, he delivered some lectures And he has continued to publish in the uh, New Dictionary of Theology, the article on justification, this view that these Gentiles in this passage are New Covenant Gentiles is found woven throughout Wright's writings. I'm not going to enumerate them here. I have this chronological bibliography if you'd like it. I mean, I can get it to you. But I would highly recommend Simon Gathercall. And I am going to enumerate what he has done. Uh, Scott Hafeman I would mention also. Now, this is in footnotes. And no one seems to be paying attention to it, but Scott Hafman did teach this. Now, he and I wouldn't agree on what he does with the Mosaic Law, but I would agree with what he does with the Gentiles in this passage, and he's very clear on it. Gather call, 1999, A Conversion of Augustine from Natural Law to Restored Nature in Romans 213 to 16, Society of Biblical Literature Seminar Papers. Again, that was published in 2001 in a volume edited by Daniel Pate and Eugene Tassell, Romans Through History and Culture series. Then he published a journal article in the Journal for the Study of the New Testament in 2002, A Law Unto Themselves, the Gentiles in Romans 2, 14 to 15, Revisited, and then his volume, Where is Boasting? He's got a lot in there on it. In 2003, the Doctrine of Justification in Paul and Beyond, some proposals in a volume edited by Bruce McCormick, Justification and Perspective, Historical Developments and Contemporary Challenges. And there are others I could mention. Michael uh, Winger and also a man in Japan at the uh, Tokyo University who is the librarian and the New Testament professor there have written articles on this. It's not just Cranfield. I hope you get that. And if you haven't studied this out, and you haven't interacted with, especially, I would say, Gathercole, because he's brought together a lot of these sources and has probably the best presentation of the issues on both sides. Now, I am also indebted to Doug Moo and Tom Schreiner and their commentaries. I think they've done a very good job of presenting both sides of it and citing the sources, and I appreciate that. It's useful. And so if you don't do anything else, you might want to go and see how they present it, because I think it's fair, I'd say especially Tom Schreiner. However, can it be that some are not seeing the forest for the trees? Let's take a look at the trees in the passage, but then we must see the forest. The trees... And verse 13 and 14, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. And I would re- refer to this as the fact of the obedience of these Gentiles. And I would insist, there is no partial obedience here. There is no sometimes or in a few cases. When you want to put words like that in there and modify it that way, uh, how would you like it when somebody does that with redemption and throws in words like hypothetical and potential? Don't do it here. There's no partial obedience here. That may create other problems, but we need to deal with them. But it isn't here. Paul hasn't cast it that way. He hasn't phrased it that way. Then, at the end of verse 14, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, the consequence of the obedience of these Gentiles. Verse 15, in the beginning of the verse, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, the significance of the obedience of these Gentiles, and then the nature of the obedience comes at the end, their conscience, also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another, the nature of the obedience of these Gentiles. This, The nature of the obedience is nothing more and nothing less than the exhibition of a functioning conscience, a conscience that agrees with the judgment of God expressed in verse 16. Some people object to that, and it's almost as if, oh, our conscience doesn't do that. That's not a new covenant, John. A, conscience, a functioning conscience of someone involved by the Spirit wouldn't accuse or excuse. 1 John 3, 20 and 21, For if our heart condemneth God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemneth not, then have we confidence toward God. Please don't try to convince me from the word of God that New Covenant Gentiles' consciences don't function this way. And the, and the important thing here is their conscience is functioning in agreement with the judgment of God. They don't have the law, number one. They don't have the law, but they do have the law. This assumption of an eternal moral law universally inscribed internally since creation and fall would also be true of the unregenerate self-righteous Jew as well. It's not just the Gentile that this is about. The unregenerate Jew has the same thing if they're right, but he also has the Mosaic Code. Possession of the law is not the issue at stake for Paul, only for the self righteous Jews. He doesn't diminish the significance of the Sinai event, the giving of the most significant body of special revelation up to that point in salvation history. He doesn't diminish the significance of it by flatlining it with a supposed eternal moral law taught nowhere else in Scripture. Obedience to the law, submission to it, is the issue regarding these Gentiles, not disobedience and rebellion. There is not one iota of argumentation on Paul's part here for the disobedience of these Gentiles or for their rebellion against its application to them. Number two, either they have the eternal moral law written on their hearts via creation and fall, or they don't. Only work, not law. If they do, then Paul's argument falls to the ground in Romans 2, verses 1 through 16. If they don't, and Paul's argument here stands, then the eternal moral law defense falls to the ground. My point is, they can't have this passage. It's not theirs. Now where are they going to go? Look in their writings and see what verse they go to. Look in their creeds and their doctrinal statements. This is where they go, but it's not theirs. They're not seeing it through new covenant eyes. There is not one word in this passage that connects to creation or any of the scriptural creation account. There isn't a whisper of support anywhere in this passage for the notion the majority of authors posit concerning the inscription of the eternal moral law in the hearts of all men via creation. Number three. They do the law, but don't do the law. The incomplete obedience of the unregenerate self-righteous Jew countered by the incomplete obedience of the unregenerate moral pagan. Possession of the law is not the issue at stake for Paul, only for the self-righteous Jews. Obedience to the law is the issue. Joint disobedience or common disobedience between Jew and Gentile is not Paul's point and does not advance his argument here. If the law is not written on their heart, but only the work, the effect, the impact, whatever, then what laws, capital L, or laws, small l, work, is written there. The law, capital L, was not given until Sinai. This is explicit in Exodus. They don't have the law, capital L, so they have, these Gentiles don't, the passage asserts that, so they have the work written on their hearts of a law that they do not and cannot have either to their identity as Gentiles or their place in history obedience or lack thereof to what? If the law is not written on their heart, but only the work, I'm left with these questions, and I'm not getting good answers. And I would remind you where Paul's going to go with this. And and here's where, when we get to the forest Do we forget where we just came from in chapter 1? Where Paul's going at the end of Romans 2? Where he's going in Romans 8? This can't be about new covenant Gentiles. It can't. that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And drive on in that passage to mortification. If you don't have a functioning conscience that agrees with the judgment of God, you will never begin to mortify sin. I would remind you also of hermeneutics. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture is its own interpreter. We must compare Scripture with Scripture to understand its meaning. I insist, if a first-century Israelite read this letter, heard this letter read, their mind would immediately go to Jeremiah 31, and they would get the point. Let's step back from the trees now to view the forest. Chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. We're not going to read that chapter. I think most of you are familiar with it, and maybe you even know where I'm going now. If you ever grew up near a large river or a coastal plain, you may have seen dredges operating. It appears to me that some interpreters have been operating a dredge in the book of Romans. They've been dredging the cesspool of immorality depicted in Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse 18 and following in order to come up with some moral, unregenerate, and unjustified pagans to stack up against the self-righteous and immoral Jews. Back up, Mr. Exegete! Take another look, Mr. Interpreter. What exegetical magician's hat do you pull this rabbit of moral Gentiles out of after working through Romans chapter 1? Where in the cesspool of human immorality have you dredged up these falsely so-called moral Gentiles? How do you square your moral Gentiles with chapter one in the epistle to the Romans? When you leave that chapter, do you close the door and proceed as if it was never written, as if it didn't exist? When you consider reprobate Gentiles, unregenerate Gentiles, Gentiles outside of Christ, this is no moral majority. There's not even a moral minority to be found there. No, it cannot even be considered an immoral majority. If Romans 1 and Romans 3, which follows, teaches us anything, it teaches us that this is an immoral unanimity. This alone should give you pause in even entertaining the suggestion that moral Gentiles are presented here by Paul. This consideration should cause you to back up and think again about any grammatical objections you may have, the trees, to seeing the Gentiles of Romans 2:14 to 15 as New Covenant Gentiles. Are you really seeing these Gentiles through God's eyes when you consider them as outside of Christ and yet moral? Are you viewing this text through the eyes of a first-century reader when you reject its connection to the prophetic promise in Jeremiah? Does your hermeneutic assume that the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah's prophecy is not being fulfilled? Do you operate from a hermeneutical base that proceeds as if the promise is not an issue? Is it so easy to rule the new covenant out of court and sweep it under the hermeneutical carpet? Let me show you a moral Gentile. How is it that their consciences function in agreement with the judgment of God? The only moral Gentiles on the face of this earth are those Gentiles who've been grafted into the olive tree, who've been translated into the kingdom of light, who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, who are in the Son of God, who are those in whom Christ dwells who can claim his righteousness as their own, who have become the righteousness of God in him, who have been washed in the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, and who are on their way to glory with him. The only moral Gentile is a new covenant Gentile. You and I, as new covenant Gentiles, are the moral Gentiles of Romans chapter 2. At the end of the day, my goal is not to get you to agree with me or to get you to buy into my view. My goal is to get you to see yourself in Romans 2 as the moral Gentile Paul's talking about there. It matters what you think about yourself in the mirror of God's word. The apostles holding something up to the opponent in the diatribe here. People like you and me. What does that do? What does that do for this self-righteous Jew clinging to the two tablets of the law, to the fact of their election and their special blessing and receiving this body of revelation and their heritage? Well, we may disagree, and I'm not here to disprove natural law, if you are familiar with the literature, no way that's going to happen. I am here to take this text away from them. I'm not here to deal with all the issues involved with the proofs for eternal moral law inscribed in the heart of creation. I am here to say, this passage doesn't go there. Today, in our audience, we're delighted to have with us a class of third- and fourth-year students from Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center, who are here to fulfill part of their requirements of an elective course, Surge 797, Surgical Special Topics. They're here with us at Evangelical Theological Hospital to observe theological heart surgery in action. (laughs) The surgery we will be performing today is of an exploratory nature. There is a question concerning what is in our patient's heart. The patient's name is Adam. There is a suspicion that there is law there. We will be operating with a very sharp scalpel on Adam, the scalpel of the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. As we probe into the heart of Adam, we are unable to find any law there but something is there. When we probe further with our scalpel, we discover that what is there in the heart of Adam is the image of God. Do not lower the image of God to law. Law is the shadow the schoolmaster, not the thing itself. I repeat, do not, do not lower the image of God to law, nor elevate law to the image of God. Romans chapter 2, the other side of the forest. Consistency must be maintained in our understanding between what Paul is doing concerning the law in the first half of Romans chapter 2 and circumcision in the second half. And I am amazed. The literature I have immersed myself in for many years, how many people cannot get it that Paul's doing the same thing with the law in the first half of the chapter as he's doing with circumcision in the second half. The, The. self-righteous, unregenerate Israelite of the first century comes to the table with his law and his circumcision, and Paul strips him of both of them. No, you're not. No, you don't. These people do. Your promised blessings of your new covenant are being fulfilled in them. Do you know what that would do to a Jew, how they despised the Gentiles? They wouldn't darken the doorway of their house. Think of Peter with Cornelius. That's what he was confronted with there, a new covenant Gentile. I would never eat an unclean thing. I would never eat with the Gentile. I wouldn't let them touch me. They're unclean. You're a new covenant. What Jeremiah prophesied, I did it to them. It's theirs. Your circumcision is no circumcision. I have circumcised them. This is what Paul, this is an evangelistic apologetic. If you don't see it there, you don't know the heartbeat of the apostle Paul. The two halves of this chapter stand and fall together. They are two sides of the same coin. If you haven't handled that chapter that way, you need to go back to the drawing board. The Jew is pictured here almost like a balloon, and Paul's there with these two pins. And when he's done, they've got no balloon left. He's popped them both. This is part of the true Roman's road. For I speak to you Gentiles, even as much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. If you don't think that's what Paul's doing here, you don't understand him. Does he have to say it there in Romans 2 for us to get it? For some people, apparently, he does. He says it later. Chapter 10, that was chapter 11, verses 13 through 14. Chapter 10, verse 19, But I say, Did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. He is doing precisely that in Romans chapter 2. He is provoking them to jealousy by elevating these new covenant Gentiles, putting them on display. Your covenant? What about the new covenant? You're clinging to the old covenant? These people have your prophesied and promised blessings. Paul is confronting self Righteous Israelites who base their security on their possession of the external Mosaic law code with new covenant Gentiles inheritors of these blessings. This understanding of what is going on in this passage is the only one that does justice not only to the trees of the passage itself, but also to the forest of the rest of Romans. If rightly understood, Romans 2 should be seen as an evangelistic tool. If Romans 1, 18 to 32 may be seen as comparable to Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Athens to pagan Gentiles in Acts 17, then Romans 2 should be seen as comparable to Paul's defense to the Jews in Jerusalem on his arrest in Acts 21, verse 37 to chapter 22, verse 21, or to Agrippa in Acts 16. Those who we meet who find assurance, man on the street, knocking on doors, people you know, Those we me, who find their assurance in their mental assent to the apostles' creed and to their being sprinkled as an infant should be confronted with Romans 2. Any who claim to Christian faith based on their possession of a creed or experience of a sacrament should be dealt with from Romans 2 to strip them of their pride so that they don't cling to these external markers and they need to know God has to do a supernatural work inside of them. Or they have no hope. How Paul dealt with the unregenerate Jews of his day is precisely how we should deal with the religious folks we meet with who lack the heart of the matter. It will not do at such times to confront them with pagans who are just as good as they are. The way of Paul was not then and is not now to allow the heathen to measure themselves by themselves. The self-righteous religious person who trusts in an external creed or administration of a sacrament needs to be confronted with the new covenant in its essence. Did you ever notice how Detective Columbo always seems to turn around with one more question when he's leaving a suspect? One more thing. Well, I have just one more question for you. Have you ever attended a Bible conference where you were given homework to do? (laughs) Look into the mirror of the Word. See yourself there. If you are a New Covenant Gentile, this passage is about you.